This is The Widow Podcast and I am Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I'll be supporting you through the loss of your life partner so you can find a more positive way through your grief. I want to give you hope after loss and to know that when you are ready, you can create a meaningful life for yourself with the help of me, Karen Sutton and The Widow Podcast. To another episode of the Widow Podcast. Today, I have got the lovely Rosie Freeland with me. Rosie um, has set up the Widowhood Podcast with her friend Helen. I don't know Helen's name. What's Helen's name? Helen Rowell. Helen Rowell. Um, and you've done season one, haven't you? Which I know has been a huge hit and has been absolutely amazing. A very funny, raw, crazy take on everything widowhood which is absolutely brilliant you've had some great guests on um but now rosie you are are here with me today so thank you for coming thank you for coming on and and saying hello to us thank you for having me i'm in the firing line now now i get to see what it's like on the other side (laughs) (laughs) that's it all the questions fired at you oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) and you haven't got helen there either to to hide hide behind (laughs) i have not But at least there won't be, I'm, I'm not quite as obscene as Helen, so it'll be a bit cleaner than it would be if she was here. <laughs> I know, we'll get we'll get into it because your podcasts are hilarious. You're both obsessed <laughs> with bottom noises and farts and poos. And <laughs> oh, God, I'm not sure that's what I want to be synonymous with. <laughs> There's a lot more Thanks. to it. There's a lot more to it. <laughs> but it is funny. Um, anyway, welcome. So should we start? Should we start at the beginning, Rosie, sort of how you ended up in this club that nobody wants to be in. Yeah, sure. So um, my husband, Huey, died a year ago, just over a year ago, after two and a half years. Um, you know what? I never know what to use here language-wise, like battling or losing their fight. I always, I just really hate that terminology. After two years with um, a really rare form of osteosarcoma, it was difficult because twice it um, he was operated on and had chemo and it went away. But obviously, both times came back much quicker um, after after the treatment. And then um, at the beginning of last year, unfortunately, it came back and there was nothing they could do. So we had about eight weeks from that point of that diagnosis to when he died in a hospice. Um, yeah, so pretty standard cancer death story, as Helen likes to say. Just <laughs> um, <laughs> how it goes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nonetheless, painful, but it... Um, no 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 weird surprises in my story no because you have two children I as do. well don't I you? do I do I mm. do so I have um a six-year-old and a two-year-old and I was actually just found out I was pregnant with my two-year-old uh about a week before Huey was diagnosed for the first time um and then just about a month or two after he was born the second diagnosis came um and then it was yeah another year after that before we were there was nothing more we could do after that and were you in lockdown or mm. were we in lockdown at that time? So you weren't able to get to see Huey as much as you would Not have liked to? No, I mean, they are so strict in hospitals. I think even still, to be honest with you, but it was really hard on him because he had um, chemo as an inpatient. So he was in for a whole weekend. And I mean, hospitals are bleak places and you're surrounded by people who are often much more ill than you and I think one of the big pieces of advice he was given by someone else he knew who'd who'd been through chemotherapy was don't look at anyone talk to anyone make friends with anyone I'm sure other people have a different approach but 
she said, you know, your story is your story. It's not their story. So don't compare yourself to what they're going through because quite often, you know, you're unfortunately next to someone who's um, who's worse off than you. But yes, lockdown, not able to visit him, really tough over the weekends that he had chemo because, I mean, it's just lonely, isn't it? You can't, you just feel guilty for not being able to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Were you able to be with him at the end when he died or? Yes, thank goodness. The hospice were absolutely amazing. I mean, I've never stuck so many things up my nose. Oh, gosh. That's, that's <laughs> Why are you sticking up your nose? <laughs> because we had to do a COVID test every time we walked through the door. So if you went if you went twice in a day, which I often did, you know, up goes the cotton bud. Um, uh, but, but, yeah, it just became part of the daily routine. And once once you d- proved that you were negative um, and brought a negative test with you, you didn't have to wear a mask in the room with him. It was only when you were kind of in the communal spaces. But, mm-hmm. I mean, by the time he was in the hospice, it was early 22. So all the vaccines had been rolled out. People were a lot more relaxed about things. I don't think there were any major kind of legal restrictions, but it was just all about being careful and keeping people safe. Mm-hmm. And what about the the children? Did did you take them in when he I died? Did. Or no, I didn't take them no. in um, after he died, or at the time that he died. He died on a Sunday evening, but I did take them in most days. Um, so he was in the hospital for four weeks, um, and I took Rory in my six year old for the last time. It was probably I think it was the morning before he died, the day before. And we knew because, you know, I, I don't know how much I'm sure your listeners know lots about end of life care. But by that point, he'd lost consciousness. So he was breathing, but he wasn't sort of outwardly conscious. Um, mm-hmm. That was quite a difficult decision. I, I did um and ah about it all morning, whether or not it was a good idea. But I'm kind of always of the mind that I would, would rather regret doing something than not doing it. Yeah, it's a really hard one, isn't it? Because it's not really something at that age you can ask them either, is no. it? Um, it's it's a decision that that you kind of have to make and and live with. And I think you know it's very easy to look back and and give ourselves a hard time for things, isn't it? But you know, understanding that you'd rather do something than than not do it. Yeah, I would hate to be sitting here, or you know, the other. Well, there is one strange twist in our story, actually, in that my my mother in law, very sadly, her first husband died, and she's got children um, with him, and they were the same age as my boys um, when their father died. And I've learned a lot from their experience, and I think that the idea of sitting with Rory as an adult or a teenager and have him say to me, you know, why didn't you let me go and say goodbye to daddy? Or why didn't you let me go to the funeral? I'd rather deal with the short term, I don't know, fear or upset as a child and be reassured that as he grows into an adult, he, I let him do what, you know, I thought he would have wanted, um, than, you know, be berated for not including him in things. Does he talk about it now? Does he remember going to see his dad a year on, on that morning? Uh, no, he's not particularly tatty about it. He doesn't. He doesn't really like it. It come up sometimes in conversations out of the blue, like, um, oh, you know, Daddy liked spaghetti bolognese or whatever. Um, but he he's hugely empathetic, and I think he's been doing some therapy. Um, I think part of the issue with that is that he is too scared to upset me, and so he doesn't proactively really talk often about his dad because he's worried that it will make me upset um which is sad but 
I sort of understand it and I know you know it will come out I don't I think I think he, I know he remembers going to the hospice in the earlier days because we took like the Skeletrics up there and they were playing Skeletrics and watching TV together and actually Rory's birthday was a few days before um Huey went in there so we saved all his birthday presents and opened them together just the three of us in, in Huey's hospice bed but um I'm not sure whether he'll remember the very last time mm. and actually sometimes you think it's nice for them to remember that you know their dad Mm. alive and, and well as opposed to in those moments isn't it yeah so after Huey died what kind of support did you draw on that that helped you through those sort of early raw days you mean emotionally or physically or, or any or anything any kind of support I think it's been a really interesting experience understatement of the century um and it's it's interesting to reflect on it now because i'm now a year in and i know well since joining this club everyone talks about how year two is the hardest and i get that now because i think when somebody has had a really long and debilitating illness after they die there's quite a big sense of of relief and freedom suddenly my life wasn't controlled anymore by oncology appointments or chemotherapy treatments or you know surgery recovery I wasn't having to get another person up and ready for the day or take them up to bed and I just think my nature and I don't know if it's just human survival instinct but was very much to sort of focus on the positive and I feel awful saying that because there isn't a positive but I think you know the other positive being he's no longer in pain and, mm -hmm. and no longer suffering with anxiety and fear and I mean he was miserable he had bone cancer which meant that he pretty much lost the the use of his legs. I mean, he wasn't constantly in a wheelchair. He could walk on one leg with a crutch. But he was a phenomenally sporty human being, obsessed with fitness, loved sport, really, really just wanted to run around after Rory and play rugby and stuff in the garden. But he lost his entire purpose. And I think in year one, I don't know if it's just me, but I found that I, I almost kind of didn't let myself grieve or be upset because I just thought well some things are easier now but now that I'm in year two I find it much easier to look back and remember him before he was ill and that is really painful because that's the person that we really lost that's really no longer part of our lives and I almost I almost feel more griefy is that a word <laughs> like it hits me all the cliches all the things that you hear from people about grief are coming out of me now I would say yeah, I think that first year, it, the, the shock, I think, kind of carries you through. And it doesn't it doesn't feel real. And I think there's a sense of, I don't know about you, but I kind of felt that, you know, people keep saying to you, don't they, get through the first year, get through the first year. And mm. in your mind, you're thinking, well, if I get through the first year, the second one's going to feel a bit easier um, because I've done one. But actually, for me, I got to the end of the first year and it's the reality of shit. Mm. This is this isn't just a one year thing. Mm. Like the shock starting to wear off, the reality starting to kicking. I'm absolutely exhausted, and I've got to do all that again. Mm. And and they're never coming. It's all of that, isn't it? And you're trying to process it and understand it. And mm. and I love what you say there about it. Does sound weird, and I know people find it really difficult talking about the positives mm. in grief, um, and because it doesn't really feel like there's any. But I think to allow yourself to look for the good in a situation mm. is is really beneficial to us because we can all focus on what shit, right? You, you know, because there's a lot of it there. But if we can allow ourselves to see the good, 
in the situation or in our own person. And it's going to be different for everyone, isn't it? But mm. I don't know. I think it helps. It's just a it's a it's a different perspective, and it doesn't take away the pain, and it doesn't make it any easier. But I think it just allows us to see that there is still some good in in life and in the situation that you find yourself in. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think that my one caveat would be don't do that to the detriment of allowing yourself to be unhappy. Mm-hmm. So something that I'm working with um, in therapy at the moment and kind of unpicking is. I'm actually really, really sad deep down and I really, really miss him. But my brain does this thing when it kind of that switch flicks on and it goes, oh, but remember how awful it was when you, you know, when he was ill. Remember how scary it was. Remember how you didn't know what was coming and, you know, and I don't know, you had an extra person to look after and how stressful it was. And immediately that that sadness and that missing kind of gets submerged again. And it's only been in the last couple of weeks that I've been kind of picking away the layers of that. Yeah. like the bottom of the laundry basket underneath all the perfectly folded sheets that should have been put away two weeks ago and right at the bottom you find that odd sock and you're like ah I do need to feel that you do need to feel it so it's getting yeah. the balance and it's not easy it's not easy to get the balance at all it's not and and it is it's making space for for both isn't it you, you know and, and the balance shifts as, as you work through it you, you know trying to look for the good in the very early days can feel futile as you move through it you know a bit more might shine through but that you know the heavier emotions um sort of outweigh it but you're right you know it is learning to live with all of it isn't it and it Mm. is messy and chaotic and noisy and exhausting and and all of those things and and I think we do have a tendency to find certain roles certain masks that we can put on um to to allow us to to continue you know living because Mm. life still has to be done right you know you've got two young kids and a house to run and I think you work as well do you you back at work Rosie yeah yeah Yeah. so all you know it's a lot of balls to to juggle and then it's you know you've got all the roles that your person played in life as well that that they did that you're trying to do so it yeah it's (laughs) this is why sometimes I think year two can feel really chaotic now I think you and Helen have got this amazing like bond haven't you 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 met a a, a grief group I think mm. uh, did you also it's a support for the children yeah um and and fell in love with each other <laughs> immediate, <laughs> immediate friendship blossomed you both have a really lovely way together it is very honest very raw um, and, and you do talk about anything and everything within the grief world, the things that, that people are, are scared to to say, to, to come out with, because it's, you know, it's not right. And I shouldn't be saying that. And that's not mm. what widows do. Um, but I think it's ace. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And what kind of prompted the podcast? Was it because you couldn't find something that you were looking for out there? Absolutely. I mean, I had not until I went into um, the room where I met Helen, this sort of charity um, that she set up for for bereaved children. Suddenly, every single adult in that room had been through what I'd been through one way or another. And people were asking really open questions like, have you taken your wedding ring off yet? Or have you had sex yet? Or, you know, they miss, you know, do you miss them? And I did remember talking to one woman particularly we were having a discussion about whether or not we went to see uh, our husbands in their funeral home and the first thing she said was that she did and because I, I don't know if this is right but I think they prop their head up with a pillow 
And when you do that, obviously, it's like when you open your phone and it's accidentally in selfie mode. You've got about eight chins. And she said that. And I was like, oh, my God, yes. That was like my first thought when I went in there. Like, you would not like that angle, babe, because you've got <laughs> lots of chins. And it's just, it, it's real. And people have these thoughts, but they just think that they can't talk about it because it doesn't fit in with the standard weeping all the time you know, respectful. None of us want to disrespect our, our partners, but um, sorry, I'm off on a tangent. I always do this. You have to whip me back in, I'm afraid. <laughs> anyway, Helen and I got chatting and we then swapped numbers and we had about a week with hours worth of WhatsApp voice notes, swapping ridiculous stories and really heartfelt ones as well. It isn't all about the smart. We, we do often kind of contact each other when we're having a really bad day. But um, I think we both sort of said we weren't hearing this said anywhere publicly. And yet in these little corners, these little pockets, people were hiding the fact that they were on dating apps or, you know, just unable to talk about resentment that they felt towards their partner or, you know, I don't know, just just things that, that are human nature but aren't readily kind of available in a public forum. And we just said, look, f- it, let's give it a go. We think we're quite funny. I'm not actually not nearly as funny as Helen. Um, but let's just try and see if it has any appetite. And if we if we help one person, if we get one message from one person who says, oh, my God, I'm so glad you said that out loud because now I feel normal. Yeah. Then that that would have been, you know, mission accomplished. Um, and it is brilliant. It really is. You know, I, I had a lady in my membership last week saying, uh, you know, it's only been a couple of months, if that, since her husband died. And she she goes to the gym, she loves her exercise, and there's a guy there that she's friendly with, but she's she doesn't fancy him, but she's developing these, these feelings. Like, she's like, oh, my God, I just kind of, I'm feeling things I really shouldn't be feeling. And it's like... Oh, widow's fire, my <laughs> friend. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, everyone in there is kind of going... It's absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. And she, and she kind of said, oh, if I did anything, I could never forgive myself. And it's like, I'm not doing anything wrong. If you, if you want to have a shag, have a shag. Like, it, it's, and I know it's not that simple, but like, there's a lot of shame around these things, isn't there? But actually, when your, your person dies, there is so much. There is so much that comes with that. And there is the, the you know, the loss of intimacy and, and touch. And you, we're still human. We're still alive. And we still have desires and wants and needs. And... And and all of that's kind of okay. And it is important to talk about it. You're right. And it's so brave of you both to do it because it's very public. Mm. You know, I speak very openly in my kind of groups and my forums and I, I am very open and I, I, I don't particularly hide anything, but I'm also aware that maybe, you, you know, friends, family, in-laws, all that kind of stuff um, are, are listening. And, and it, you, do you know what I mean? So I think it's so brave and so courageous of you both to do that and put it out there. Do you worry about what people think or what family think? Or have you just kind of gone, this is what I'm doing. This is my truth. I worry about it to an extent, but the purpose and the benefits that I get from it outweigh the worry. And like, if you don't like it, don't listen to it. Um, or if you listen to it and something's upset you come and talk to me about it and we'll work it out like everything we say is is truth Um, I know there was an episode where we talked about the support that we did or didn't get from friends and family and there were a few a few people that I just sent a message to before and said look I'm not talking about you (laughs) Um, and then the 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 dating episode where I talked about um, 
this person that I had a very brief, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. Bling. Dalliance. <laughs> Dalliance. <laughs> That's very posh. <laughs> I just... Um, I just wanted to, there were a couple of people in, in the family and in um, Huey's friendship group that I just wanted to give the heads up to because I just, I don't want people to get nasty shocks. That's the thing. So if there's anything that's kind of going to possibly hurt someone, then I would give them the heads up. And I always would ask permission before sharing a story. But, you know, the the stuff about sex toys and, I mean, most of that's Helen. <laughs> so you'd, you'd have to ask her that question. <laughs> Oh dear. Oh hilarious. Gotta do what you gotta do, right? Oh yeah. I mean it's another taboo, right? Like we're we're all so comfortable now talking about mental health, as we should be, and medication and therapy and all that sort of stuff. But sex and death still make people, I don't know if it's just the Brits, but it just makes them seize up. Yeah. That women shouldn't possibly want intimacy. And you know, you can't possibly say my dead husband. You have to say my late husband or he passed away it's like bollocks he did he's dead he died like that that's just the truth um <laughs> it's not disrespectful or rude it's it's the truth yeah and i think you know we're trying to kind of unpick some of that taboo and make people it's almost i suppose take away the shame if there's someone sitting there who stumbles upon the podcast and they've been feeling really guilty or shameful for having certain thoughts or doing certain things and they hear something in our experiences that they can relate to and it makes them feel comforted and yeah less shameful than than brilliant I love that and you're right because you, you know we all do this differently don't we we all do this in different ways and different time frames that uh, there's no right or wrong but there's nothing out there either to kind of well there is there is something out there but it's not it's not huge is it it's it's not massively talked about and which just baffles me because the only really certainty we have in life is the fact we're all gonna die we're all gonna lose people around us they're gonna die and 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 we don't we do shy away from it it's a really uncomfortable conversation for people to have and I think we have a lot of expectation on ourselves of what we should and shouldn't be doing in our grief journey I think other people have expectation of of what the grievers should be doing but also what they should be doing as as the support (laughs) around us um how long these things should take the pressures that we put on it it just it goes on and on and on and understanding that you know it's something that you do learn to to live with but it lives alongside a a lot of complexities and, and nuances doesn't it but you know and and i know you know we hear like the best of, of you guys on on the podcast in that respect you, you know you really do come together and you have such an energy and and that that truthfulness that rawness about everything that you experience and I know that's you know that you've also put posts up when you've been having you've been consumed by grief and, and it's mm. really taken you down but you know going back to when Huey was ill did, did you and he have that kind of um outlook no that it was different oh um we had moments where we would sort of sob together, but they were very rare. I mean, I think one hand, I just felt like I needed to be strong and kind of pretend that everything was going to be okay. This is before the terminal diagnosis. Um, because if I lost face, then he would think, oh God, she's got no hope. So therefore there's no hope. You've just got to be the positive one. Um And then when he had the terminal diagnosis, we went away for a week with the kids and some friends of ours. And we had a couple of mornings, like just drinking a cup of tea in bed together where it was, it was, it was always in 
tandem is that the right like I would be really low and he would be comforting me and then vice versa but there weren't any mega profound conversations like I want you to go off and do this or I yeah he didn't really like talking about it no so I didn't force it I think the only time that I made a big boo-boo I hate that word why did I just say that (laughs) I've never said that before in my life (laughs) the only time that I've I've up was um we were watching Call the Midwife because I think there's something coming on afterwards so just watching the end of Call Call the Midwife and there was a really horrible birth scene I just remember sitting there it was about three days after the terminal diagnosis and going oh thank we don't have to go through that again and he burst into tears Mm. what is wrong with you and he went well I won't but you might with someone else and that's Mm. the only time he ever ever mentioned the fact that my life would go on without him and I obviously then burst into tears. I was like, are you mad? Have you seen our children? Do you really think I want more? <laughs> um, but that's about as close as it got, I think, um, in terms of like instructions for future. There was a lot of stuff around the kids, like make sure they do this or don't do that or whatever. But um, in terms of our relationship, it was, I think it was just too painful for both of us. Is there anything that you wished you'd have said or done differently with hindsight? I mean, I always wish that I told him more that I loved him. Um, but I think, you know, do you, don't you always do that? Even if you say it every five mm. minutes, like I just want, I, I'd love to be able to talk to him and just make sure he knew mm. how, how important he was to us and how much, uh, you know, I utterly adored him and was so grateful for our relationship. Because the problem is with illness, particularly, you know, before it gets to that terminal stage is you get ratty with each other. And I I remember the days when I just used to kind of like slightly lose my temper or be short-tempered with him and ratty. And I just feel so bad now mm. for that. And I think that's very common. Um, but, you know, it's more, it's more, I wish I hadn't been like that. I wish I'd been, I wish I'd been a more natural nurse. I think some people are just so brilliant at that and others just don't have it in them. And it's just not, I, I am not one of those amazing you know bedside manner nurses I couldn't do it I don't know how they do it I think they are the most incredible people in the world you know nurses and and doctors but I yeah no I don't don't think there's anything that I wish I had said particularly no no I I get it I think you're right I think you know whatever the circumstances we could probably all look back and wish we said more done more mm. um because it there's never a, there's never enough time there's never enough words and and, and i think it, it you're never ready to really say goodbye because it always feels like you want more don't mm. you? you just it's it's kind of natural mm. you don't want them to go um but i think i also i didn't sorry ginger i didn't want it to be and i don't think he did either like weepy weepy um you know, expressing undying love for each other. We wanted to have fun. (laughs) And because he'd been so anxious and tight sounds really negative, but understandably anxious and and just kind of completely disappeared from who he was through the illness. I think when they told us that he was going to die from it, there was a sense in him that, well, there's nothing left to be afraid of now. Like, I know it's going to kill me. Whereas these last two years, I've been constantly looking over my shoulder, wondering if it's coming back. And as soon as he went into hospice, he he came back to the person that he was before. I mean, obviously not physically, stuck in a hospice bed, but he was laughing. He was relaxed. We had a date night where this mission star restaurant 
it's a mission staff fancy pants restaurant in 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 the town where we live um let us have a takeaway which they don't normally do and i took it up and we sat together in the hospice room as a surprise it was like a date night and we just listened to all of our favorite music and we laughed and we and he danced and he sang i put a post up on my instagram um of him and i wanted that i wanted more of that i didn't want the lovey-dovey vows stuff mm. Yeah, because that's what you you loved and what your relationship mm. was was. But I remember seeing that post actually because didn't you plan the the music for his funeral yeah. <laughs> that yeah. date night? Yes. And it sounds so bleak, but it, God, it was fun. We had fun. It was yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, making the most. I remember speaking to somebody once who, um, her and her husband, he was given the terminal diagnosis and he was quite poorly. And they were like, what do we do? What do we do? They decided to throw a massive party. They just had this massive party, got everyone around, got absolutely hammered, had fun. Um, and, you know, and it wasn't long after, I think he, he, he kind of died, but it was that. They didn't want it to be all serious and doom and gloom. It was, and it's things like that, isn't it? It's kind of anything goes. Everything's okay. Like go with what feels good and right for you in in those moments, rather than thinking what should I be doing and, mm. and how should this pan out? Because that never really gives us the answers we want. I think you know people feel like I think the, the media, you know, and by the media I mean kind of like BBC dramas as well. I don't mean just newspapers and stuff, but they they play a part in forming what I what we think we mm. should do when it comes to death and being a widow, and I think that's really shit because it's just not the way it is. And and then people feel like if they're not sitting by someone's bedside and declaring their undying love and weeping and weeping that that they've missed out and that they should have done that. But the reality is, um, Huey absolutely loved watching Cheers and Frasier, God knows why. And he would watch them with his brother. One of his brothers went and basically moved into the hospice with him. And they had this table, which was absolutely full of snacks. I've never seen, we had like hundreds of sweets and chocolates and biscuits and all this crap. And they just sat there scoffing their faces and watching shit TV and laughing. And and that's just great because it's just normal. Like yeah. if, if it were me, I would want I would want to feel like I was just living my best normal life. Yeah. Um yeah. and that's fine. Yeah. I think absolutely it's probably you know, just craving a bit of normality, isn't it? Just mm. that things that you would do day to day rather than it all be about death and, and dying and what's gonna happen afterwards. You can't sit and live in that can you that's no. like what's been the most surprising thing to you like so far in your grief that's you, you kind of thought okay I, I didn't think that I didn't realize that oh gosh that is a really interesting question uh how hard being a solo parent is because mm. I didn't even think about that I just thought I'm not going to have the love of, like, love of my life with me my kids are not going to have their father I didn't really think about the impact that would have on my identity as a mother mm. and therefore my relationship with my children mm. um, because it's f- shit. Like, it is shit. And they're beautiful, perfect, amazing children and I am so grateful to have them. But there are times where I just think, oh, I can't do this. How do I do this? It's like packing the car to go away for the weekend or, uh, you know, changing another shitty nappy like the fourth one in the day like where you used to be able to share that and I said something the other day I think it was on our social media about bank holidays bank holidays are 
shit if you're a single parent, a solo mm-hmm. parent, whatever you want to use, because it's another day that you have to entertain your children. And small children are amazing, but they're also bloody hard work. And you you also got that added layer of like the constant guilt, like shit, are they watching too much TV? But I have to put the TV on because I have to fold the washing. And if they're not distracted by the TV, then they will just come over to the laundry basket and open it all up again. And that's just a job completely wasted. I think that that has definitely been something I just didn't even think about it. I didn't even think about it when he was dying about the fact that I'm I'm going to be like the practicalities of being a single parent. And has it changed the way you parent? Do you feel like you have to be both? Yeah. Mum and dad now? Yes, I'm really into football now. <laughs> Honest. I mean, I have to pay more of an interest in it, which is fine. Um, Does it change? The thing I find most difficult is that when there are two of you, one gets to play good cop and one gets to play bad cop. So when one's telling off, the other one can, you know, be a bit more softly, softly, or if you're a bit grumpy, then the other one tends to be in a better mood. But when you're on your own, I just end up feeling like I'm constantly being a dick to them, like constantly being a bitch, shouting at them, telling them off. because I don't get the the respite of the other person saying, you know, why don't I distract them with a bike ride or whatever? It just, yeah. yeah, I think I think it's difficult with the ages that they are, but I do think that it will change and get easier as they get older, definitely. And I'm so glad that that they, you know, are in existence because we we speak to lots of widows. I'm sure you do too. Who are not only grieving their partner, but they're grieving the children that they were never able to have with them because they were, I don't know not quite at that stage in their life together and mm. um yeah but it definitely presents its 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 own challenges it does a, a good cop bad cop thing i always remember my kids always and, and every now and then it still comes up but that they used to say it a lot more in the early days like you used to be the nice one and, mm-hmm. and daddy was the mean one and now now you're mean why are you mean you used to be nice you used to be like it's like oh i'm not but like <laughs> i did me a break. Like, yeah like yeah. you know he would send them to their room and not without their dinner and i'd sneak up some food type thing well like, oh, i can't do both of those things now can i <laughs> when you're being an yeah. ass i've got to tell you off like mm. that's kind of how it goes i got hit with the ultimate uh hot like oh shit from my son the other day when he told me that um why can't i be as fun as bluey's dad you know bluey do you your, your guys are a bit too old to yeah, watch bluey. Old for that, yeah. okay so it's like an amazing uh australian cartoon of this family of blue dogs and the dad is just like i mean they are so great and but it's so fictional um <laughs> Do watch it. It's good for adults too. And, and he is like, he's the most fun person ever. And I just thought, I'm never going to be Bluey's dad. <laughs> and I want to be the fun one that does all the crazy stuff. But, you know, you get to the end of the day sometimes, I've got nothing left to give yeah. to anyone, to yeah. anyone, to myself. You know, I've got a job to hold down. I've got, you know, bills to pay. I've got a house to try and keep on top of. I mean, I am very lucky. I've got, um, you know, amazing family and friends and and really um, like incredible childcare support. So I can't even begin to imagine what it must be like for people who are completely isolated from from their families um, due to, I don't know, where they live or if they just don't have good relationships with them. But um, it is just, it's all consuming. It changes your day-to-day by the minute mm. and and I mm. think that family and friends of the person who's died don't often understand that like the bigger impact 
Absolutely. It's it's really hard, I think, for people to understand the bigger impact, isn't it? I think it's often hard for us to even explain it and, and how it feels for us. Um, because, again, you, a lot of the time you're exhausted and sometimes you just can't find the words. And even when you mm. can, getting somebody to really understand the depth of it is really tricky. What what kind of helps you now where you are in your grieving journey and, and how do you kind of see year two panning out in terms of how you're going to support yourself through it? Um, I write letters to him. Love <laughs> so it. I, I write a journal um, and it's all on my computer um, so that I can just literally tap, tap, tap. I don't have to worry about any spelling mistakes. I've never read it back yet, but I, but I do write, you know, Hey, doll, because that's what we always used to say to each other. And um, sometimes it's just reflecting on stuff that I've done during the day. Sometimes it's really painful and it talks about, you know, my emotions. And other times it's like reflecting on a happy memory. Because I think when you're in a really dark place, if you write it down, two days later when you're still feeling a bit low, you look back at it and you go, oh, I'm not as bad as I was then. Or if you're really in a really dark place or you're feeling guilty or whatever, you look back at one of the happy things that you've remembered and it, and it boosts you again. So that that has become part of my, not every day, but every couple of days. Um, and I am doing therapy, which is really helpful. I don't know if it's something I'll be doing forever, but at the moment it helps. Um, and I've got a group of friends that I have made since Huey died who are brilliant because they allow me to be someone that is not that woman whose husband died of cancer. And that is something that I'm rebuilding. I think our last episode of our, of our podcast, the last episode of series one was all about identity because that is actually, that's quite a big surprise is, is you feel like floundering, but like I've been part of a couple for, we were together 10 years. It's not even that long. So I can't imagine what it must be like. People have been together for, you know, 25, 50 years. Um, and that gets taken away from you. You sort of think, what do I eat tonight? Because I would have eaten this if I was with Huey, because that's what we both liked eating. But I don't know if I actually like that now. Or what do I do at the weekend with the children, with my free time? What do I like doing? It's mm. it's kind of, it takes away so much of more than just a person. Um, it's your entire future is just taken away from you and it's completely out of your your hands and how you rebuild that and which direction you choose to go in can be liberating but it's also incredibly intimidating absolutely it is it it's all of it isn't it it's, it's all of it in one how how have your relationships with friends and family been impacted have, have, have some kind of lost their way a little bit um nothing drastic um i I'm incredibly close with my parents and my sister who's decided to f*** off to Australia. <laughs> Luckily, she's not. She's coming back soon. Um, but that was really hard because we're she and I are really close and she was very, very close with Huey. But she needed to go off and do her own kind of grieving um, outside of you know being everyone else's support. I'm, I'm really close with Huey's family. There's a lot of them. He's got five brothers and sisters um, and, and his parents as well, obviously. I think it's... It's interesting to see how dynamics in relationships change when the person that connects you is no longer there and, you know, what the priorities are. And I don't know, it's quite difficult to talk about without like potentially saying something that people might find upsetting, but I, there's, there's no bad blood, let's say. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting as a 34 year old woman who is 
close with her in-laws and is desperate to make sure that her children kind of continue that relationship with their father's side of the family. But then you think, am I still going to be going and having Christmas with them when I'm 50? How does that change and transform as time goes on? And, you know, like friends of his that were my friends because they were his friend. Uh, but if you strip everything away, we actually have absolutely nothing in common. Like how how long will that relationship survive? Um, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing if some some relationships, some friendships fizzle out. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think we all just need to be kind of honest and and kind. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds very very woo woo. But I mean, my main thing is to just don't hurt. Like, don't cause anyone hurt. Yeah, if you if you can avoid if you can avoid it. Yeah, so it's it's a year in and it's kind of thinking right this has been a year and this is how it's been and I don't know I, I've always had a propensity to look too far into the future a catastrophist and I, I suppose I need to stop doing that and kind of live in the everyday but at the moment I'm very lucky I have a, a very good support network around me of my family and his um and lots of lovely friends it is that is lovely that is really lovely and and they're clearly very you know special to you but you're right things do shift and change and we change and our life changes and and things evolve and and how do all these things fit in and I really struggled with that I really struggled Mm. with it in in my journey and but somebody introduced me to the poem I don't know if you've read it a season a reason or a lifetime um it's it's lovely and it just really helped me kind of understand actually that not everybody that comes into your life has to stay in your life forever. It's okay. It's okay if some friendships do soften and and maybe fall by the wayside or, you know, you don't see them as regularly as, as you once did. It doesn't mean anything that it, you know, you don't have to make it mean something it doesn't mean. It's, it's mm-hmm. just our life becomes so different. It becomes our priorities become different. How we experience things become so different, don't they? Mm-hmm. You know, like doing the things you used to do with your person as a as a family or as a couple it just doesn't feel the same some things might but some things might not as well and and it's okay to acknowledge that I think and and find things that do work for you it's places as well like I have a real issue with places like I find it very difficult going to stay um with my in-laws I mean, there's nothing that they that they do or say that makes me feel uncomfortable. But you know, I have the same thing with Devon. We used to go down to Devon a lot. We we met there and we got married there actually. And I think if I'm if I'm in a place or with certain people that he would always have been, or I wouldn't be there if it wasn't for him, um, I just notice his absence more. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm with kind of my my new friends <laughs> um, or friends that I would have been with, you know, even if I'd never met him, it doesn't, it's not so raw. And I think it's learning to kind of balance the leaning into that and working out how to, how to reconnect with the place or the person, um, but also being wary of, you know, respecting your grief, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think I've had, issues in the past because there's so many people um kind of around us of making sure that the 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 sea stays smooth is that the right thing like keeping everybody yeah. happy and the problem with that is that if you don't address your own feelings or your own needs um then it suddenly just bubbles out as anger which is just not very productive for anyone 
No. So it's being honest about what you want, what you don't want, what you feel comfortable with, what you don't feel comfortable with, but at the same time, keeping in mind not causing unnecessary upset. Yeah, absolutely. No, I hear you. I hear you. And then that it is a, a bit of a balancing act, isn't it? And, and when you're maybe not feeling like you're firing on all cylinders, it can be quite a hard thing mm. to manage. So tell us then, the, the Widowhood podcast, um, do you have anything else in the pipeline as, as well as the podcast? Not as of yet. Not as of yet. Quite time. time. I, I, even, I haven't even washed my hair today, Karen. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. And I think, you know, that the podcast will, will continue to shine Thank you. for you. It, it will, you know, you've given people so much and, and you'll find a way. Do you, do you have a sort of idea of when it will be coming out again or are you just seeing what you can do for now? So I will probably spend the next months going into planning mode and figuring out kind of topics and themes because that's the way we like we I that's the way we chose to set it up and I'd like to continue it like that in that you know it's not just um it needs to have structure in terms of themes and yeah. I will plan those themes I've got a, a few guests so I've kind of warmed up so scheduling those in um and then we'll, it'll be it'll be dependent on their availability I guess yeah. you know if yeah. no one's able to talk to me till September it will be September October <laughs> if they all want to do it in the next couple of weeks and maybe it'll only be a month off I don't know um but it will come back definitely it just might be a bit different yeah, no, it'll be brilliant. Look forward to to hearing it and see what you do and where you take it. It'll be fab, really fab. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on, Rosie, and and sharing oh. your story with us and being so open. I think you're right. You know, it really is needed, isn't it, so that people can draw from other people's lived experiences. And I think, you know, there's always something in somebody's story that that resonates and helps mm. somebody validate or normalise what, what they're experiencing and, and what they're going through. And they're having a dalliance with someone in the, in, in the early stages and that's fine too. It's just, mm. it's that, isn't it? It's, it's normalising those things for people and giving people permission to do what they want to do so thank you thank you so much for sharing it's been lovely talking to you oh it's been so nice talking to you thank you for having me thank you so much for listening to the widow podcast with me karen sutton if you would like to be part of a supportive community of people who understand your grief come and join my free facebook group widowed and rising and make sure you tune in to the next episode of the widow podcast